is ARN. What I've said for years now is the best thing you can do as a Christian to live well in this world is find a healthy church and build your life around it. I mean, do what you got to do. I, and I, I, I agree for people. There's no health, no churches in 100 miles of me. And that's uh, sad. Move. Move. Well, but I got busy. What's more important? You know, you can have your business over here and lose your children. Or you can move and maybe have to work at a 7-Eleven and help build your life around a healthy church for the welfare of your children. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. Good to have you with us. It is the 5th of January, 2024. It is the 12th day of Christmas. Tonight is Twelfth Night. Tomorrow is the Feast of Epiphany. So you can figure out where you stand on your uh, church calendar. Um, if you are a, a fan of Shakespeare, you are undoubtedly familiar with Twelfth Night. That is tonight. So and today is the 12th day of Christmas. So I don't know how, what was it, 12, 12 somethings. <laughs> we know the last five, we have five golden rings, four calling birds. Three. So the first five days we've got down, I'd have to look up what the 12th day is. I, I uh, have not memorized that song. Um, but we talked about that on Monday Meandering. So uh, that's something you can go back and listen to that if you got some questions about the 12 days of Christmas, what it was and what it wasn't, and what it most certainly isn't. <laughs> uh, all right, this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to Scripture, theology, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. We webcast every Monday through Friday at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Rumble. And then the podcast is available for download wherever you find fine podcasts. Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You are certain to find something worth listening to. I guarantee it. Well, have you had a good week? It's Friday. We are sliding into the weekend. And and uh, Sunday <laughs> um, is the FCS National Championship. The Grizzlies take on the Jackrabbits in Frisco, Texas. As uh, that team from South Dakota and that team from Montana are playing for the national championship. Um, in what used to be called the uh, 1AA and is now called the FCS level of Division One football. And as you can see, I am wearing Grizz gear. I wore Grizz gear yesterday. I am drinking coffee out of my Montana Grizzlies coffee mug. Mmm. Uh, kickoff begins at noon our time, so it's going to be right as we get out of church. And uh, we have already discussed our plans of uh, where we are going to go have lunch, park in the car, and listen to the game on the radio until we're done with lunch. And then we will drive home listening to the game as much as possible on the way home. 
Um, we have a couple of radio dead zones between Missoula and our house here in the Piney Woods, so we will no doubt miss out on some of the game, but uh, that, that's okay. Um, then we get home, we'll watch however much of the game is left and hopefully cheer on a Grizz victory uh, there in Frisco, Texas in the FCS championship. It's going to be a tough game. Jackrabbits are a tough team. Um, I don't know how this one's going to go, but it's going to be it's going to be a tough fight. Um, I, I'm picturing a fight a lot like the uh, double overtime victory over the Bison a couple of weeks ago that in the semifinal game. This is going to be the same sort of game. This is going to be a white knuckle, who's going to win kind of game, because these are these are two very good football teams, and uh, it's going to be fun to watch. It's going to be fun to watch, um, and I am uh, very strongly wishing for a Grizz victory. That would be our third national championship, and uh, it'd be nice to to have another flag there in the. Uh, southeast corner of the end of the uh, stadium um, next to the other two national championship flags that fly there every Saturday during a game um, just would be that would be fun um, and and I can't I can't think of a team that would deserve it more um, just a, a team with a lot of heart um, a lot of good kids on there um, I'd love to see my friend Michelle's son Levi win a national championship in his senior year. Um, Michelle died um, actually right at the end of the season last year of cancer, and uh, her son Levi is a senior this year playing for the Grizz, and I would love to see him win a national championship. Also, Coach Reed, who um, was the coach during our first national championship win. He just passed away um, this week at the age of 90, I believe. And uh, so I'm sure they're going to have, uh, we called him Papa Bear, and I am sure that there is going to be uh, some of that win one for Papa Bear spirit in the Grizz. So, uh, yeah, it'd be fun to win another national championship. I'm very much in favor of that. <laughs> All right. What do we got coming up today? We have our scripture reading. We got prayers from the Book of Common Prayer. We have a reading from John MacArthur's Daily Readings from the Life of Christ. And it's Friday, so it's Federalist Friday. We're looking at Federalist number 40 today. Again, like Theology Thursday yesterday, it's been a while since we've done a Federalist Friday. So, um we will get all caught up here and, and take care of that. Um, so let us now begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 2019 Book of Common Prayer. Let us humbly confess our sins unto Almighty God. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. 
O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your Holy Word, you may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, our scripture readings today are Genesis 18 and Psalm 18. Until we get to the end of Genesis, they will be in sync. Once we get past Genesis, we will, of course, not no longer be in sync. But we started Genesis and the Psalms at the same time, chapter of Genesis and a Psalm every day. So until we get to Exodus, it's going to be in sync. <laughs> Not the band, but you, you understand, yeah. Genesis chapter 18. Then Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing nearby. He saw, and he ran from the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth, and he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree. And let me bring a piece of bread, that you may refresh your hearts. After that you may pass on, since in such a manner you have passed by your servant. And they said, So you shall do, as you have said. So Abram, Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah, and said, Hurry, prepare three sayas of fine flour, kneaded, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd, and took a tender and choice calf, and gave it to his young man, and he hurried to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk, and the calf which he had prepared, and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree, and they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being also old? And Yahweh said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? saying, Shall I indeed bear a son when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. So Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. 
Now Yahweh said, Shall I conceal from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? For I have known him, so that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice, so that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about, spoken about him. So Yahweh said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put to death the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justice? So Yahweh said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Then he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, Yahweh departed, and Abraham returned to his place. And now, Psalm 18. For the choir director of the servant of Yahweh, of David, who spoke to Yahweh the words of this song in the day that Yahweh delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompass me, and the torrents of vileness terrify me. The cords of Sheol surround me, the snares of death confront me. In my distress I called upon Yahweh, I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling, and were shaken, because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens and came down, with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. 
He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him. Darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, past his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. Yahweh also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High gave forth his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance, and threw them into confusion. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Yahweh, <clears throat> excuse me. At your rebuke, O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of, the day, in the day of my disaster, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Yahweh has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of Yahweh, and have not wickedly departed from them. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore Yahweh has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands before him, before his eyes. With the kind you show yourself kind, with the blameless you show yourself blameless, with the pure you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people, but eyes which are lifted up you bring down. For you light my lamp, Yahweh my God, illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but Yahweh, and who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me upon high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my ankles have not given way. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I crushed them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued me under those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to Yahweh, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners cower before me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be lifted high. 
the God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me, who delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Yahweh, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives great salvation to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his seed forever. This is the word of the Lord. And now our reading from Daily Readings on the Life of Christ. This is uh, Daily Readings of the Life of Christ, Volume 1, and we are up to June 7. <laughs> As we're just doing them in sequential order without paying attention to the date. We didn't start it at the beginning of the year, and we're skipping weekends, and obviously the days that I'm not here. So, today's devotion is Serving Only One Master. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Matthew 6.24 Dr. MacArthur writes, Just as we cannot have our treasures both in earth and in heaven, or our bodies both in light and in darkness, we cannot serve two masters. The Greek word for masters is often translated Lord, and often refers to a slave owner. By definition, a slave owner has total control of the slave. For a slave, there is no such thing as partial or part-time obligation to his master. He owes full-time service to his master. He is owned and totally controlled by and obligated to his master. To give anything to anyone else would make his master less than his master. It is impossible to serve two masters and fully or faithfully be the obedient slave of each. In this way, we cannot claim Christ as Lord if our allegiance is to anything or anyone else, including ourselves. And when we know God's will but resist obeying it, we give evidence that our loyalty is to someone or something other than him. But the person whose master is Jesus Christ can say that when he eats or drinks or does anything else, he does all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Make your allegiance to Christ your priority each and every day. Ask yourself, what alternative masters compete the hardest for your devotion? How has the inviolable truth of this no man can serve two masters statement been proven true in your life and in your observation of others? But why do we seem so intent on trying to have it that way anyway? Good thought this morning as we go into the weekend. All right, folks, it is Friday. So it is Federalist Friday as we continue to work through the Federalist paper. Today is Federalist number 40 of 85. Hmm. So 40 of 85, meaning that we're not quite halfway through the Federalist Papers, the, uh, which means, of course, that uh, we might finish them this year. And then next year, we'd actually get into looking at the Constitution in light of what we have learned in the Federalist Papers. But, hey, that's okay. We're in no hurry. Um, it is an election year. 
So hopefully uh, what we study here will be helpful to you in formulating your thoughts and your intentions as we go into the presidential election year here in the United States. If you are in another country and watching, because I know we have several um, overseas uh, regulars here in the audience, um, those the, those of you that I know of are in uh, um, likewise democratically elected types of government, but, but parliamentary systems. Um, I'm speaking mainly of England, Canada, and Australia, where I know I have listeners. So, <laughs> um, you too face elections. I don't know. I don't track your election schedules. Um, I know they're not regularly set elections. There, there's a. They have to have an election every so often, but they're not. There's not a set date. Usually, the prime minister calls for an election or or something like that, and they're they're scheduled at that point. I'm not exactly sure how that works. Um, I'm, I'm fairly conversant in how the parliamentary system works, but the timing of your elections is a mystery to me. And <laughs> we'll just leave it there. But uh, this is Federalist number 40. Remember the Federalist papers were written as a series of newspaper articles, essays really, they're, they're long but think about the 85 articles written by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, who were among the principal framers of the Constitution, to explain and to promote the ratification of the Constitution. This was a... Um, in-depth explanation of why they were doing what they were doing. Now, compare that to the average White House briefing, where they do everything they can not to explain what they're doing, and indeed obfuscate and try to mislead and misdirect as they're doing things that they don't want people to know about. And I'm speaking of both parties, really. Um, just, you know, think about the discourse of these 85 essays. And, and you have the Anti-Federalist Papers also, which were written by those opposed to the new Constitution, um, which I have no intention of reading <laughs> um, on the podcast, so you can be much, re much relieved by that. But we have this um, this this vast array of thought put forth by these distinguished men who were involved in the framing of the Constitution, and the fact that they took this time and delivered this explanation to us is something that that we really ought to be thankful for, and it's something that we might ought to expect our current politicians to do a little bit more of. Um, you know, I don't know how many words are in this particular Federalist paper, number 40, 
but it's more than an average tweet. I can guarantee you that. Um, why do, you know, congressmen and senators and, and presidents not put out more lengthy explanations of their policies and their actions? Um, you know, something that it, it, it was... It was, it was not an eye-opener for me, but it was an eye-opener for a lot of people, and it was very enlightening to me. Is There's a book out called Reagan in His Own Hand, and it's a um, look through the radio scripts that he wrote, because between his time as governor of California and his time as President of the United States, Ronald Reagan did a daily syndicated three-minute radio blurb where he would talk, you know, three minutes, not a lot, a lot of time, but he would talk in those three minutes about this or that topic. And what was discovered was, I mean, it was known to the people close to him, but it was it was discovered and made known by the, the author of the book, whose name escapes me at the moment. But she was a graduate student working on the end of the Cold War, really. That was her area of study um, as a historian. And she had been given access to the papers in the Reagan Library. This was after President Reagan had died and, and everything. But she was given access to the, the archives not the public part of the library, but there there's archives stored there that, uh, I mean, you can get access to it. You know, it's not a unusual thing to get access, but it is uh, something that has to be, you know, you have to have a reason and you have to apply and all that. And she was, she was doing research for, I believe, I believe she was doing research for a PhD. I'd have to go back and, and reread the introduction to her book. But while she was in the archives, she came upon boxes full of eight and a half by 11 or eight and a half by 14 yellow legal pads. Um, actually, they were pages from the eight by from yellow legal pads that were, you know, three or four pages stapled together, written in President Reagan's handwriting. And she asked him, like, what are these? He says, oh, those are the scripts for his daily radio broadcast. He had written them all. And in those radio broadcasts, in the policies that he put forth and the positions that he espoused and the, the, the thoughts that he articulated, you can see all of the major policies of the Reagan administration, whether they were policies the Reagan administration succeeded in in uh, implementing or whether they were policies that they were not able to implement, you can see all of the things there in those radio scripts. And so she wrote this book, Reagan in His Own Hand, um, and then they made an audio version of it called Reagan in His Own Voice where they um, put, uh, it, it has, 
I'm not sure. I'd have to go back. I, I haven't read them in parallel. I've read the book and I've listened to the audiobook several times. Um, it covers the same ground, and and but I'm, I think the audiobook is is it's not it's it's an abridged version of the actual print book, but it has in it the actual radio broadcasts. So as you read, as you listen to the book, you get the commentary, you get interviews with key people who knew President Reagan, and you get the actual radio broadcasts in, interspersed into it. Um, and so you have, you know, all of this stuff put forward, which is a whole lot different from the highly fictionalized autobiography that was purportedly written by Barry Obama. <laughs> um, there is, I mean, there, there is a thing about you're going to run for president, you come out with a book. Um, and, and most of those books are, are ghostwritten and they are written in a propagandish way. They're not actually putting forth uh, policy positions and, and beliefs. So, you know, Reagan in his own hand. I highly recommend that book. Um, but it, it is the sort of thing that the Federalist Papers were, where you have this expression of political theory and explanation for action. Of course, with the, with the Reagan book, it was a, a uh, um, not so much an explanation of action as a, this is what I w- would like to do. <laughs> and, and of course, much of what he did. All right. All of that to say Federalist number 40. <laughs> the powers of the convention to form a mixed government examined and sustained from the New York packet. Fe- Friday, January 18th, 1788, author James Madison. To the people of the state of New York, the second point to be examined is whether the convention were authorized to frame and propose this mixed constitution. The powers of the convention ought in strictness to be determined by an inspection of the commissions given to the members by their respective constituents. As all of these, however, had reference either to the recommendation from the meeting at Annapolis in September 1786 or to that from Congress in February 1787, it will be sufficient to recur to those particular acts. The act from Annapolis recommends the appointment of commissioners to take into consideration the situation of the United States to devise such further provisions as shall appear to them necessary to render the constitution of the federal government adequate to the exigencies of the Union, and to report such an act for that purpose to the United States in Congress assembled, as when agreed to by them and afterwards confirmed by the legislature of every state, will effectively provide for the same. The recommendary act of Congress is in the words following, whereas... There is provision in the Article of Confederation and Perpetual Union for making alterations therein by the assent of a Congress of the United States and the legislatures of the several states, and whereas experience hath evinced that there are defects in the present Confederation as a mean to remedy which several of the states, and particularly the state of New York, by express instruction to their delegates in Congress, have suggested a convention for the purposes expressed in the following resolution. And such convention appearing to be the most 
probable mean of establishing in these states a firm national government. Resolved that in the opinion of Congress, it is expedient that on the second Monday of May next, a convention of delegates who shall have been appointed by the several states be held at Philadelphia for the sole and express purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. And reporting to Congress and the several legislatures such alterations and provisions therein as shall, when agreed to in Congress and confirmed by the states, render the federal constitution adequate to the exigencies of government and the preservation of the Union. From these two acts, it appears, first, that the object of the convention was to establish in these states a firm national government. Second, that this government was to be such as would be adequate to the exigencies of the government and the preservation of the Union. Third, that these purposes were to be effected by alterations and provisions in the Articles of Confederation, as it is expressed in their Act of Congress, or by such further provisions as should appear necessary. As it stands in the Recommendary Act from Annapolis 4th, that the alterations and provisions were to be reported to Congress and to the states in order to be agreed to by the former and confirmed by the latter. From a comparison and fair construction of these several modes of expression, it is to be deduced the authority under which the Convention acted. They were to frame a national government adequate to the exigencies of the government and of the Union, and to reduce the Articles of Confederation into such form as to accomplish these purposes. There are two rules of construction dictated by plain reason, as well as founded on legal axioms. The one is that every part of the expression ought, if possible, to be allowed some meaning and be made to conspire to some common end. The other is that where the several parts cannot be made to coincide, the less important should give way to the more important part. The means should be sacrificed to the end, rather than the end to the means. Suppose, then, that the expressions defining the authority of the convention were irreconcilably at variance, were irreconcilably at variance with each other that a national and adequate government could not possibly, in the judgment of the convention, be affected by alterations and provisions in the Articles of Confederation, which part of the definition ought to have been embraced and which rejected? Which was the more important, which the less important part? Which the end and which the means? Let the most scrupulous expositors of delegated power let the most inveterate objectors against these exercised by the convention answer these questions. Let them declare whether it is of most importance to the happiness of the people of America that the Articles of Confederation should be disregarded and an adequate government be provided and the Union preserved, or that an adequate government should be omitted and the Articles of Confederation preserved. Let them declare whether the preservation of those articles was the end for securing which a reform of the government was to be introduced as the means, or whether the establishment of a government adequate to the national happiness was the end at which these articles themselves originally aimed, and to which they ought, as insufficient means, to have been sacrificed. But is it necessary to suppose that these expressions are absolutely irreconcilable to each other, 
that no alterations or provisions in the Articles of Confederation could possibly mold them into a national and adequate government, into such a government as has been proposed by the Convention. No stress, it is presumed, will in this case be laid on the title. A change of that could never be deemed an exercise of ungranted power. Alterations in the body of the new instrument are expressly authorized. New provisions therein are also expressly authorized. Here, then, is a power to change the title, to insert new articles, to alter old ones. Must it of necessity be admitted that this power is infringed, so long as a part of the old articles remain? Those who maintain the affirmative ought to at least ought at least to mark the boundary between authorized and usurped innovations, between that degree of change which lies within the compass of alterations and further provisions, and that which amounts to a transmutation of the government. Will it be said that the alterations ought not to have touched the substance of the Confederation? The states would never have appointed a convention with so much solemnity, nor have described its ob objects with so much latitude, if some substantial reform had not been in contemplation. Will it be said that the fundamental principles of the Confederation were not within the purview of the convention, and ought not to have been varied? I ask, what are these principles? Do they require that, in the establishment of the Constitution, the states should be regarded as distinct and independent sovereigns? They are so regarded by the Constitution proposed. Do they require that the members of the government should derive their appointment from the legislatures, not from the people of the states? One branch of the new government is to be appointed by these legislatures, and under the Confederation the delegates to Congress may all be appointed immediately by the people, and in two states are actually so appointed. Do they require that the powers of the government should act on the states and not immediately on individuals? In some instances, as has been shown, the powers of the new government will act on the states in their collective characters. In some instances also, those of the existing government, those of the existing government act immediately on individuals. In cases of capture, of piracy, of the post office, of coins, weights, and measures, of trade with the Indians, of claims under the grants of land by different states, and above all, in the case of trials by court-martial in the Army and the Navy, by which death may be inflicted without the intervention of a jury, or even of a civil magistrate. In all these cases, the powers of the Confederation operate immediately on the persons and interests of individual citizens. Do these fundamental principles require, particularly, that no tax should be levied without the intermediate agency of the states? The Confederation itself authorizes a direct tax, to a certain extent, on the post office. The power of coinage has been so construed by Congress as to levy a tribute immediately from that source also. But pre, but pre terminating these instances, was it not an acknowledged object of the convention and the universal expectation of the people that the regulation of trade should be submitted to the general government in such a form as would render it an immediate source of general revenue? Had not Congress repeatedly recommended this major measure as not inconsistent with the fundamental principles of the Confederation? Had not every state but one, had not New York herself, so far complied with the plan of Congress as to recognize the principle of the innovation? 
Do these principles, in fine, require that the powers of the general government should be limited and that beyond this limit, the states should be left in possession of their sovereignty and independence? We have seen that in the new government, as in the old, the general powers are limited, and that the states, in all unenumerated cases, are left in the enjoyment of their sovereign and independent jurisdiction. The truth is that the great principles of the Constitution proposed by the Convention may be considered less as absolutely new than as an expansion of the principles which are found in the Articles of Confederation. The misfortune under the latter system has been that these principles are so feeble and confined as to justify all the changes of inefficiency which have been urged against it, and to require a degree of enlargement which gives to the new system the aspect of an entire transformation of the old. In one particular, it is admitted that the convention have departed from the tenor of their commission. Instead of reporting a plan requiring the confirmation of the legislatures of all the states, they have reported a plan which is to be confirmed by the people and may be carried into effect by nine states only. It is worthy of remark that this objection, though the most plausible, has been the least urged in the publications which have swarmed against the convention. The forbearance can only have proceeded from an irresistible conviction of the absurdity of subjecting the fate of the twelve states to the perverseness and corruption of a thirteenth, from the example of inflexible, inflexibly, from the example of inflexible opposition given by a majority of one sixtieth of the people of America to a measure approved and called for by the voice of 12 states comprising 59 sixtieths of the people, an example still fresh in the memory and indignation of every citizen who has felt for the wounded honor and prosperity of his country. In this objection, therefore, has been in a manner waived by those who have been criticized who have criticized the powers of the convention. I dismiss, dismiss it without further observation. The third point to be inquired into is, how far considerations of duty arising out of the case itself could have supplied any defect of regular authority? In the preceding inquiries, the powers of the convention have been analyzed and tried with the same rigor and by the same rules as if they had been real and final powers for the establishment of a constitution for the United States. We have seen in what manner they have borne the trial, even on their supposition. It is time now to recollect that the powers were merely advisory and recommendatory, that they were so meant by the states, and so understood by the convention, and that the latter have accordingly planned and proposed a constitution which is to be of no more consequence than the paper on which it is written, unless it be stamped with the approbation of those to whom it is addressed. This reflection places the subject in a point of view altogether different, and will enable us to judge with propriety the, of the course taken by the convention. Let us view the ground on which the convention stood. It may be collected from their proceedings that they were deeply and unanimously impressed with the crisis, which had led their country almost with one voice to make so singular and solemn an experiment for correcting the errors of a system by which this crisis had been produced 
that they were no less deeply and unanimously convinced that such a reform as they have proposed was absolutely necessary to affect the purposes of their appointment. It could not be unknown to them that the hopes and expectations of the great body of citizens throughout this great empire were turned with the keenest anxiety to the event of their deliberations. They had every reason to believe that the contrary sentiments agitated the minds and bosoms of every external and internal foe to the liberty and prosperity of the United States. They had seen in the origin and progress of the experiment the alacrity with which the proposition made by a single state, Virginia, towards a partial amendment of the Confederation had been attended to and promoted. They had seen the liberty assumed by a very few deputies from a very few states convened at Annapolis of recommending a great and critical object wholly foreign to their commission, not only justified by the public opinion, but actually carried into effect by 12 out of the 13 states. They had seen in a variety of instances assumptions by Congress, not only of recommendatory, but of operative powers warranted in the public estimation by occasions and objects infinitely less urgent than those by which their conduct was to be governed. They must have reflected that in all great changes of established governments, forms ought to give way to substance, that a rigid adherence in such cases to the former would render nominal and negatory the transcendent and precious right of the people to abolish or alter their governments as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. There's a quote from the Declaration of Independence, by the way. Since it is impossible for the people spontaneously and universally to move in concert towards their objects, and it is therefore essential that such changes be instituted by some informal and unauthorized propositions made by some patriotic and respectable citizen or number of citizens. They must have recollected that it was by this irregular and assumed privilege of proposing to the people plans for their safety and happiness that the states were first united against the danger with which they were threatened by their ancient government, that committees and congresses were formed for concentrating their effort and defending their rights, and that conventions were elected in the several states for establishing the constitutions under which they are now governed. Nor could it have been forgotten that no little ill-timed scruples, no zeal for adhering to ordinary forms, were anywhere seen except in those who wished to indulge under these masks their secret enmity to the substance contended for. They must have borne in mind that as the plan to be framed and proposed was to be submitted to the people themselves, the disappropriation of the supreme authority would destroy it forever. Its approbation blot out antecedent errors and irregularities. It might even have occurred to them that were a disposition, of, a disposition to cavil prevailed, their neglect to execute the degree of power vested in them and still more their recommendation of any measure whatever, not warranted by their commission, would not less excite animid version. That's one I'm going to have to look up. Then a recommendation at once of a measure full of commensurate 
to the national, fully commensurate to the national exigencies. Had the convention under all of these impressions and in the midst of all of these considerations, instead of exercising a manly confidence in their country, by whose confidence they had been so peculiarly distinguished, and of pointing out a system capable, in their judgment, of securing its happiness, taken the cold and sullen resolution of disappointing its ardent hopes, of sacrificing substance to forms, of committing the dearest interests of their country to the uncertainties of delay and the hazards of events, let me ask the man who can raise his mind to one elevated conception, who can awaken in his bosom one patriotic emotion, what judgment ought to have been pronounced by the impartial world, by the friends of mankind, by every virtuous citizen, on the conduct and character of this assembly? Or, if there be a man whose propensity to condemn is susceptible of no control, let me then ask what sentence he has in reserve for the twelve states who usurp the power of sending deputies to the convention, a body utterly unknown to their constituents. For Congress, who recommended the appointment of this body, equally unknown to the Confederation, and for the state of New York in particular, which first urged and then complied with this unauthorized interposition. But that the objectors may be disarmed of every pretext, it shall be granted for a moment that the convention were neither authorized by their commission nor justified by their circumstances in proposing a constitution for their country. Does it follow that the constitution ought, for that reason alone, to be rejected? If, according to the noble precept, it be lawful to accept good advice from every enemy, shall we set the ignoble example of refusing such advice even when it is offered by our friends? The prudent inquiry, in all cases, ought surely to be not so much from whom the advice comes as whether the advice be good. The sum of what has been here advanced and proved is that the charge against the convention of exceeding their powers, except in one instance, little urged by the objectors, has no foundation to support it, that if they had exceeded their powers, they were not only warranted but required as the confidential servants of their country, by the circumstances in which they were placed, to exercise the liberty which they assumed, and that finally, if they had violated both their powers and their object obligations, in proposing a constitution, this ought nevertheless to be embraced, if it be calculated to accomplish the views and happiness of the people of America. How far this character is due to the Constitution is the subject under investigation. Publius. So this is a, a Federalist paper that is arguing that the Constitutional Convention did indeed have the authority from both Congress and from this meeting in Annapolis, to create and instigate the new Constitution. Um, very important, um, because one of the primary objectives, uh, objections to the Constitution was, hey, they were assembled to, to modify the Articles of Confederation, not write a whole new Constitution. And this is saying that, indeed, the purposes for which the Convention was... Um, was established if a modification of the Articles of Convention was insufficient to establish the ends to which they were appointed, then rewriting a new constitution 
was then authorized. So that that was the the argument there. All right. Let us now recite our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Collect for the First Sunday of Christmas. Almighty God, you have poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light, kindled in our hearts, may shine forth in our lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Collect for Endurance. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain, and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace, through Jesus Christ your Son, our Lord. Amen. And then for the unrepentant we pray. Merciful God, you desire not the death of sinners, but rather that they should turn to you and live. And through your only Son you have revealed yourself as the God who pardons iniquity. Have mercy on the unrepentant and those who do not believe. Awaken in them by your word and Holy Spirit a deep sense of their sinfulness and peril. Take from them all ignorance, hardness of heart, and contempt of your word. Grant them to know and feel that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved, but only the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so bring them home and number them among your children, that they may be yours forever, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. All right, folks, that is Squirrel Chatter for today. That is Squirrel Chatter for this week, the first week of 2024. Have a great Friday. Hope your your week ends well. Um, If you're a student, you're no doubt back in school. If uh, you are gainfully employed in some facet in our country, you may have even had to work on New Year's Day. That's just the, the lot of life, is it not? But one thing you need to do, Go to church this Sunday. Find a good Bible-believing church. Submit yourself to the leadership of the elders, biblically qualified elders. Sit under the teaching of the Word. Fellowship with the saints and grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ every day. That's us for this week. Do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here on Monday for another episode of Scroll Chatter. Go to church on Sunday. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.